please. Yeah, it's not a real body. Mm. Try the cloak, Albert. It's a delicacy. I can't do that accent from Helen Mirren. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Helen Mirren. Hi, I'm Helen Mirren. Try that cock, Albert. (laughs) It's a delicacy. (laughs) Awful. Well, hello there. Welcome to On the Beat, the podcast that uncovers full frontal male nudity in cinema. My name is Laura, and I am joined by my co-host, Ryan. Hello. And we are joined by our special guest, Kat, of Uncomfortable Brunch. Hello. We have you here because this is an Uncomfortable Brunch movie. Yes. I I talked to you guys when you were figuring out the schedule, so every film that you have a penis in it we needed to get involved with. But we tried to make them align to, to some level of degree. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, this will be one of two that we have coming up, so stay tuned for that, because you're also <laughs> going to be covering Doom Generation with Josh pretty soon. That's true. That's yeah. at least, at, at least uh, one more. Yeah, the excitement is palpable. <laughs> <laughs> I am excited about this one because Ryan has a thing about our our director today, um, but maybe we're changing his mind. Um, I think I came into the work of Peter Greenaway with like a level of bias when I was younger, which is kind of weird because usually when you're younger and you're studying film, you tend to be like pretentious and you like pretentious things. But, but then you I, grew I, into your pretentiousness? Well, I felt that... <laughs> I always felt that Peter Greenaway was maybe too pretentious. But um, I don't know. I think I think you kind of have to... There has to be some some level of respect and admiration for some of the things that he does. But I don't know if it's like... It's 100% my cup of tea. I love that. Well, that's good because we're... Well, we all gather together today to talk about probably his... I don't know, maybe undoubtedly his most popular film? This is his seminal piece, I would say. His Yeah, his most narrative. Yes. Um, this is the most accessible of his films, probably. That you really can't find anywhere. That yeah. you can't find anywhere, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's not immediately available. Um, or at least the version that we are certainly covering today. Yeah, and I was just reading a little bit about... Because I don't have any history with any of his other films, but what is being said about it online is just that this film is a lot less cerebral than his other ones. Yeah. I was hoping maybe, Ryan, you could speak on his past films a little bit because I, I don't have knowledge there. He, yeah. He definitely will. I'm just going to interrupt him because we I haven't even said the movie we're talking about Oh, today. yeah, we should probably do that. <laughs> Which is the 1989 dark comedy crime drama art film, question mark? Well, not really, question mark. It, oh, no, it I would say it's film. incredibly an art <laughs> film, yeah. The cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover. And I'm also kind of like, is there any way that we can abbreviate that so we don't have to say it every time? I say the cook, the thief. Cool. The cook, I, thief. Usually when I've, I've thought about it in my head. Cool. 
Um, yeah, I call it Cook Thief. Yeah, because I did, <laughs> I did, a, I did do an abbreviation of it, and it's T C T T H W H L, and I am not saying that every time. No, that that's sounds... true. It's on the calendar. That is a mouthful. I was wondering what, uh, like Titty <laughs> Titty Hall. Yeah. <laughs> well, certainly we have. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do have a calendar, and we have like a whiteboard calendar that we put things on. And I'm like, I'm not fucking writing the whole title down. That's not going to happen in a million years. Oh. The dog has escaped. Ugh. This film has really quite an amazing ensemble uh, cast that they've put together. Um, Richard Bowringer, Michael Gambon, Helen Mirren, Alan Howard, Tim Roth, Kieran Hines, and I put Paul Russell. He plays Pup, the boy soprano. Oh, <laughs> oh wow. Okay. You have more people that you put on your list, Ryan. I know. Yeah, well, Pup. I was... I was... I recognize a whole bunch of, of, of the folk in this movie who have obviously been staples of British TV and, and cinema for, I don't know how many years now, like 30 years odd. Um, and I don't know if I want to name all of them. But you've already kind of mentioned, like, Kieran Hines, obviously Liz Smith, who's of the, the royal family fame, uh, Gary Olson, Ewan Stewart, uh, Roger Ashton Grift, uh, Ian Dury, uh, Diane Langton, Prudence Oliver, Ron Cook, Emer Ge- uh, Gillespie, uh, Janet Humphrey, uh, Willie Ross, Roger Loud Pack, um, oh. who's obviously of all the fools and horses <laughs> fame. <laughs> Um, totally. like a whole, like a whole bunch of, whole bunch of folk in there. Um, and obviously I'm not expecting you Americans to understand exactly who I'm referring to there when I refer to the shows that they were also in, but, uh. Well, you got to give us a reference. Only Fools and Horses, totally fine. Yes. One of the guys that I kept looking up was the first officer in Titanic. So that was important. Yes. <laughs> and he's, he's of your, of your heritage. He's oh, so he's also a Scotsman. Yeah, Indeed. I mean that's that's fine. I mean, I didn't I didn't get to finish the list, but I'm not going to. But let's just put it this way: it's a great cast of British film and TV staples. Um, so while we were watching the movie and I was doing a little bit of research, I found something out about the lover, played by Alan Howard, who's his name's Michael in the movie. Mm-hmm. Did you know that he was the voice of Sauron in the Lord of the Rings? Uh- <laughs> No. What, the the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings? Yes. Oh, okay. No, I did not okay, know that. Okay, that was really cool. <laughs> it was really cool to me, guys, because we always bring up things like Seinfeld and Harry Potter, but, and of course, Harry Potter will probably come up at some point because so he was two the, people from, at least two people from He Harry was the Potter voice of Sauron, but was he, was he the mouth of Sauron? No. Like that character from the Return of the King movie? No. So he's the indistinguishable voice of the that's ring. In, of the ring, it's right. So that literally could the... have been anybody. Yeah, that But it li- wasn't, yeah. baby. It was the lover. The lover was the voice of the oh, ring God. and the voice of Sauron. I mean that's that's how that's how you get those gigs, you know what I mean? He's really? a prolific stage actor. When I looked him up, I go, What's he from? Of course the stage. he is. Yeah, of course he is. Yeah. He is. We've we've seen Sauron's penis. So many times, a lot of times. Yeah, a lot of times. Yeah, this is this is primarily going to be incredibly uh, uh, dick thick. Let's put it that way. Dick this episode, thick. yeah, dick I like thick. that dick thick. Well, no, I lost my train of thought. I do want to point out. That's what you're. We can just move on to something, and I'll come up with it later. Oh, I yeah. think we can. Out yeah, of I think that's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. As long as you're not too like crestfallen about that 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 particular thought that you were going to put out there. Was it another Lord of the Rings like centric? I have no idea. Like geek shit oh, thing that you always gone. kind of pull it's, out. It's, so it's gone. in. It's into the ether. Yeah, yeah we gotta move on. 
cool. Everything, everything I want to yeah. say is absolutely. It's like Sauron's fart, non-existent. Yeah. Okay. Let's carry on. So we've mentioned before that this is a Peter Greenaway film. Um, I'm going to throw the synopsis out there before we get Ryan to dig into Greenaway, because this, I yeah. mean, to be honest, is one of very, 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 very many Peter Greenaway films that we will eventually do. <laughs> because yeah. that boy this knows what f- he is doing. Yeah, I guess we've held off on doing Peter Greenaway due to my unfounded bias against his work. I like that you could be honest about it. I suppose so. I guess, like, we'll get more into that maybe as I talk about Peter Greenaway. And, like, this film was spoiled for me when I was eight years old. What? Eight? Oh, right. Mm -hmm. You were talking about your father's My father's current wife. Which, if anyone doesn't realize, that means he's married more than once, at least. Um, And certainly, yes, I remember seeing the back cover of this film on VHS. And the ending of the film is one of the images on the back of the VHS tape. Whoa. Really? Yes. 100%. Now, whether or not this is the version that we watch, which is effectively the uncut, unrated version, which is the version that you should watch, even though it's not actually actively available. You know where you know where to get it. You know where to get it. <laughs> you there's just go that, on the web. There's that place. On the web. There's that dark web place. <laughs> it's not, not really even the dark, dark web. web. Oh, is it not the dark web? www. Uh, it's right next to that. Yeah, it's right next to the where you <laughs> can get your... It's on the web. You can get perfectly legal pharmaceuticals <laughs> online without a doctor. You um, wouldn't steal a car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I want to buy it. You give me to, me to buy. I'm waiting for Criterion to put this out for crying out loud. He wouldn't download a house. <laughs> <laughs> but by golly, if I could. If I could, I fucking would download, I would download a house. Let's 3D yeah. print that shit. What I mean, are we talking yeah. about? Yeah. It will it's take like, 45 years, but that's about how long it's going to take for us that? to it's be like, able to afford a house it's like anyway. Peer share, yeah, it's like peer sharing real estate. Is that how that kind of works now? It's like, like the lime. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like the lime wire for. Uh, <laughs> for like uh council housing we all um, get a piece yes i mean we would love that piece. but the thing is though we're millennials it's our fault um that's sure. why we can't progress in life like our our forefathers did anyway totally. um, so the synopsis of this film is a beautiful one line that i pulled from letterboxd one beautiful sentence that goes the wife of an abusive criminal finds solace in the arms of a kind, regular guest in her husband's restaurant. Perfect. Yeah, perfect. The tagline is great. It is lust, murder, dessert, bon appetit. (laughs) (laughs) Which, guys, this is going to go into spoilers. I mean, you know what you're getting into, but this movie's got some... I thought it was going to be, like, halfway through the film, I go, I thought this was going to be more disgusting and more fucked up. Yeah. And then it got to the end, and I was like, fair, fair play. Yes. And you lived yes. up to it, and I, I appreciated mm-hmm. it a lot. Well, it's got it yeah. sectioned off so that, like, you've, you're, you've got the introduction to the characters, and you learn what they're about, and then, like, the middle part of the movie is just, like, clandestine sex. 
And then the end of it is just like everything coming crashing down. And so it's just like it progresses in a way that you would expect. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I guess. It behaves. <laughs> until, it, until it doesn't. <laughs> the, film, the film behaves. The film behaves like a three act stage play for the most part. Um, like I'm going to be making quite a lot of references to Shakespeare and all that sort of stuff um, over the course of this uh, this uh, unraveling of the uh, the Peter Greenaway classic. But do you want wait. me? Do you want me to get into Peter Greenaway? Please do. Yes. So Peter Greenaway, he is, as far as we're concerned, he's a British film director, screenwriter, and artist, and he's obviously still active now, and he's still a man in his eighties, still making films he's, to this he's day. Still a man. <laughs> yeah, still a man <laughs> in, in his eighties. So he started as an artist, so very much kind of, I would say, um, in the vein of, of a handful of other uh, British filmmakers, namely like Ridley Scott and stuff, is they did start out in art school and they did start out as artists and then kind of transitioned into into filmmaking. Um, I guess from the behind the scenes stuff that we watched and from a handful of the things that we've read about Peter Greenaway was that he just wanted more out of the art form other than it being what he felt like was, you know, he was creating frames, but he wanted to create multiple frames with soundtracks and this idea of, like, blending all these other art forms with, like, sound and things to basically kind of uh, be a little bit more distinct in terms of his, like, artistic direction and stuff, which is kind of, I would liken how I kind of started off in art and doing illustration and painting and sculpture and then filmmaking kind of ticked all of the rest of the boxes, and I kind of moved more into that um, from doing art and things. Um, when you talk about him being an artist, what specifically do you mean? Painter. Okay. He was a painter. Um, so he went to school for paint. Yes. To be yes. A to be to be an artist, he went to art school to do art, and he came out of it, and he did he did painting. Um, okay. So, well, he's he's that's, following... hel- that's helpful to know, like the medium. Yes. I just want to make sure because he's an artist. I'm like anyone could be an artist. Yeah, do we okay. mean auteur? <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Isn't that isn't that a, a, a phrase that many of akin to like this current gen AI generation that we're now fucking dealing with as artists? Where everyone can be an artist. Fucking knobheads. Um, <laughs> Come on, keep going. Yep. He keep joins going. he joins <laughs> he joins a really long line of filmmakers who obviously incorporate like i would i would liken him to say like an akira kurosawa who to slightly more kind of extreme um he he did storyboards that were primarily all just like single paintings and he just wanted to recreate those paintings on celluloid he did all i mean kira kurosawa he did all of his paintings and the storyboards for uh ran and uh these giant canvases that he did like on set and on location. He would just like paint them all really fast and he'd be like, we're going to make it look like this. That's cool. I think that's very cool. Um, But notably, like what you see with Peter Greenaway stuff is that his influence is very much staged within art and that's very much a very kind of similar thing to many great directors out there who have taken literal pieces of art and transposed those frames into the moving image. So... He's very much influenced by the Renaissance paintings, Baroque paintings, and obviously Flemish paintings. And to anyone aware of that, it's like the Dutch artists. Um, so we see like Caravaggio, Rembrandt, 
where there are strong depictions of light and dark. And I would pull out an artistic term called chiaroscuro, which is basically the difference between the use of light and dark and how it's kind of less like, say, like a, like an impressionist painting, which works primarily with you have a white canvas and you're adding light and color to that canvas. You're effectively in chiaroscuro dealing with something that is effectively quite dark and you're adding the light to that image in order to then create the forms and the images and all that sort of thing. And obviously with Caravaggio, who obviously has quite a, he has a colorful history as being, uh, he was a criminal. <laughs> um, what did he, he was, do? He was wanted for murder. He was running around Europe while painting pictures and he was wanted for murder. Did he actually murder somebody? He did, yes. And um, <laughs> huh. there are very strong and vivid depictions of violence and things within his pictures. And I would... Honestly, one of, you know, a few of my favorite paintings of all time come from Caravaggio and obviously from, from Rembrandt as well. Um, Wait, before we move on, like, do you describe the murder? How did it happen? Who did he well, murder? Yeah, who did he murder? How because did he do I feel it? like you should, you should know these things if, you, if you're just going to throw out murder like that. I want to know more about the murder. <laughs> Tell me about well, then, the murder. <laughs> well, I've, not, I've not told this story in such a long time, but hold do, on. But like, just do it off the top of your head. Well, I can't yeah. do it off the top of my head because I can't. I only know that, that that is the case. So I would have to go back into the notes. I would have to then look for the note and then do it that way. But Always then let me... tell us details of murder. That is So like you want to know about the murder. Tell us about the murder. Murder. His, his criminal history. Yay. So um <laughs> So I've got this article here. It's from biography.com. Which notes that Caravaggio <laughs> went to trial at least eleven times. Um, so he he went to he went to trial for at least kind of writing like libelous poems, throwing like a plate of artichokes at a waiter, and assaulting people with swords. Jesus. This sounds like Ezra Miller. <laughs> yeah. And this is yeah. Well, I mean, I, mean, I guess but all the the people he groomed. Yeah. Well, at least I mean, luckily there wasn't any microwaves back then. Otherwise, he probably would have a baby in a microwave <laughs> um but here's the thing and this will kind of like seal this up because otherwise i'd be expecting you guys to then look it up yourselves and have a little bit more of the detail but he did eventually fled rome to escape punishment for killing a man and died in exile under mysterious circumstances so my whole understanding of caravaggio with this that but he he did a bunch of paintings and I'm then he also did a bunch of crimes i'm not done I need to know more about this murder. That's all it says about the murder? Like, how did he murder how the man? How did he kill him? Who was it? Was it, like, a bar fight? Or... Did he just, like, stab him he... in the neck with his artichoke? That was did really sharp. choke him with the artichoke down Wait, his throat? Artichokes are not sharp. <laughs> yeah, but you could... You could choke him out with a bunch you, of artichokes. A plate of artichokes and shove then... It, shove I mean, it in down his throat like book pieces. Like a bunch... Like your favorite <laughs> book on the French Revolution... <laughs> Right I mean, down your gullet. I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie. Like this, this thing goes incredibly in depth about all of the fucked up things this man has done over the course of his life, and I am quickly reading it because the last time I read any of this stuff, I was maybe 16. I'm fucking 30. I'm 38 this year. Caravaggio killed Renuccio Tomassoni in Rome. The artist and Tomassoni began to brawl over a bet on a tennis game. The event was the last in a series of troubles that Caravaggio brought upon himself through his volatile temperament. I mean, there's even tennis game. Yeah, yeah, there's even like 
there's even like explanations about his death and that he was he got syphilis and then he also there was an infected sword wound and then he also got like lead poisoning from the paint he was using and that's how he died a report written by the barber surgeon who examined Tomasoni's dead body indicates that Tomasoni bled to death through the femoral artery in his groin, suggesting wow. that Caravaggio tried to castrate him. He is a fucking dude. Like, he is like... Ooh, whoa! He's like the, what a he's, story! He is the baddest of bad. Wait, in what year did he die? It he's was like in the, the Sam. He's century. like the Sam Peckinpah so of the 16, 17th century. So the, oh, 16th century. Oh, was it the 16th? Right, sorry. 1500s. Yeah, so 1592, he fled, and yeah, they definitely didn't have a cure for syphilis at that time. No, 1606. No, is where it was probably he killed uh, the guy. It was probably tertiary at that point that he had the syphilis is going I mean, straight to his brain. He, he is. Yeah, he was. Yeah. <laughs> He sounds a little bit mad, but he's also, I mean, if, I, I mean, I honestly say, like, I mean, if you have any sort of interest in art whatsoever, I'd say, yeah, look at his paintings and look at the work of Rembrandt and stuff like that. And I think you'll find that, there, yeah, there's, there's, there's transposition from modern cinema from, from that sort of stuff there. So going back to Peter Greenaway, um, <laughs> let's just say, you know, there's a really strong sense of, you know, watch Peter Greenaway's movies, there's a really strong sense of, like, scene composition, like, staging, which I think is an incredibly strong trait for a filmmaker to have, because it's a very, it feels like a lost art, like, the good old sense of staging a scene and, like, you know, developing shots and stuff like that. I feel like it's a lot more about editing and stuff now. But then also there's a sense of like illumination and like where lights are placed and how that kind of all kind of, you know, works in the favor of like how these scenes are put together. And obviously, you know, there's a really strong sense of, uh, you know, costume and like contrast in that nature and obviously like nudity and how, you know, how humans interact and stuff within his films and just against a good sense of uh, design in his films. And certainly I think with The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover, we're going to see a lot of that stuff in terms of how each film, I think I think each each frame in this movie can be analysed and extrapolated quite a lot more and that the amount of information that it's giving us and like how certain things are kind of put together in this film as well. So I think this is just a very good, this is a good way to start with, I guess, our Greenaway Odyssey, I suppose. Um, but he's a prolific filmmaker. I would also say that his films, there's a long catalogue of like shorts and docs, and he also made like a bunch of mockumentaries as well. That is, I don't know, like maybe a hundred films deep. Um, boy, boy. And I would say to you to have a little <laughs> look at that. But I do have his full feature filmography here. Um so How many is that? Let's get started. Um, <laughs> maybe 20? It's only like 20 films okay. or something like that. I, I like, say, yeah, it's hits. only 20. He's only made 20 films. Um, <laughs> but uh, yes, uh, so it starts off in 1980 with The Falls, which is followed up by The Draftman's Contract in 1982. And then after that, it's a Z and Two Knots in 1985, The Belly of an Architect in 1987, Drowning by Numbers in 88, and then we're following that up with... The Cook, The Thief in 1989, followed by Prospero's Books in 91, Eight and a Half Women in 99, The 
Tulsi Looper Trilogy, which is effectively like a TV series, which was between 2003 to 2004. But what they did do is very similar to those those Rob Brydon, uh, those shows, those, those trip to films. They did a truncated, oh, um, right. edited version of the Tulsa Looper series, and they called it A Life in Suitcases, and that came out in 2005. Like the, tri- the, the trip and the trip to Italy. And yeah, yeah. With Steve Coogan and Robert. And they're always, they're always poorer versions yeah, of exactly the actual... Like that. Yeah, they're, they're just, yeah, they're poor man's versions of the, uh, the actual full TV shows. Um, but that followed up with Night Watching in 2007, um, a movie called Galt Zeus and the Pelican, company in 2012 einstein in guanajuato i think that is guanajuato in uh, 2015 and then in 2022 he made a film called walking to paris and that's his last film at the moment he had a lot of those have penises in them yes we're going to be covering quite a a few of them i don't i don't know how better those films are didn't he do the pillow book um, he might have done, but it might not be. It might not be on the list that I've got here. Okay. So it might not have been referred to as a feature film, if that's the case. Well, it, def- it definitely is. Either but way, I thought it was because I looked up his filmography on Letterboxd earlier. Yeah. And it said I had seen one percent of his films, and one of them was. The, the pillow, pillow book. book. Yeah. Yeah, like I say, I took the full list unless I'm I'm wrong, but when did the pillow book come out? Well it might um, also be that he was like maybe a producer or something on it. Or it could have been any of the multitude things because he's also worked in TV. It came out in ninety six. But he did direct it. Okay. Oh, okay. But that was the first one that I'd seen of his because Ewan McGregor's in it and he's naked the entire film. Yeah. Um not the first time, not the last. There's a big, there's a big comparison I make to Greenaway in terms of, uh, like, I'd say if you like Ken Russell, you'll yes! probably like, you'll probably like Peter Greenaway. I now, for love better or for worse, Ken Russell. Yes, I know you do. I know you do. Um, so much. But, I, I have yet to dive into Ken Russell, but it is an odyssey that I will take soon. It's, you're gonna, you're gonna love it. It's a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting dive of, uh, of film. He's um, one of those the Ken you Russell can, stuff. You you're can, either it's very love or hate it. Like that's kind of what I feel about Ken Russell. You're either really into it or you're not. A lot of his really weird stuff is on Tubi. Yeah, Tubi is uh, what Josh calls the Wild West of streaming services. Of course, yeah. He t- he showed us that uh, Chinese produced. Um, is it like Trump versus the fucking like aliens or the something? The Illuminati. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like it's like Trump comes back as like a Chinese clone. <laughs> he fights the aliens and the fucking Illuminati and shit. Oh dear. Yeah. There's all there's a whole bunch of trash on there, but also, funnily enough, even to like my kind of you know, my kind of feelings on the whole thing is like if you want to watch like TV show animes from like the, the late eighties to the nineties. Tubi is the place to go. Tubi's so, amazing. Yeah. It really is. Um, like, I'll deal with the... That's a service I would pay for if I didn't have to watch ads. Yeah. This podcast is not sponsored by Tubi. It should be. It should be. <laughs> I will reach out to the people at Tubi and I will... We fucking crazies every week. I love like, Tubi. Yeah. 
Yeah, we ring his fucking praises. We should be getting money from Tubi. They're just like, fuck We'll reach you. out. I'll reach out, don't worry. <laughs> They're like, fuck you. We don't fucking do shit. All right, do we have any additional insight on Greenaway before we... We'd like dive into this. I even have, I have so much stuff to talk about even before I have stuff about the film. Oh my God. My, my only kind of. <laughs> like my, about the story of the I film. feel like you guys are edging me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to wait until we get you all glazed up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of us isn't going home tonight. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. I'm starving. <laughs> So, uh, I have a couple of things I just wanted to bring up that I just thought were interesting about the film. Um, so this was Greenaway's first film to be released in the ni- in the United States since the Droughtman's <laughs> contract in 1982. Oh, God. Um, and he kind of used uh, this Jacobian play, Tis Pity, She's a Whore. Yeah. As the template for the film. That's um, the name of it? Tis Pity, She's a Whore. It's yeah. a tragedy that was written by Tom Ford first performed in 1626. Yeah. And it's an, an incestuous love story between Giovanni and his sister Annabella that ends in disaster and death. Which is weird because I'd read that and I was I was like, you know, I've read that play before. And it's... Uh, it's really familiar to me as well. Yeah, super familiar. And um, it's... It, yeah, it makes <laughs> it makes sense for how structurally this film is, this film is put together. Yeah. Um, wow. Definitely. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's it's definitely has notes of stage theater and the way that it's shot. It feels like the camera moves around versus having quick cuts. There's a weird thing that I felt about, and I don't want to like pander to, uh, let's say our our in inverted commas modern audience, but. When I was watching this, I was like, I was like, this is like a no holds barred, like harder to stomach, like stylized Wes Anderson sort of stylistic kind of idea here. Like the way that the camera moves, the way the lenses are, like I feel like a lot of his stylistic traits, love him or hate him as it were, um, come from the the kind of the green away, the green away uh, aesthetic, I would say. Um, or at least that's kind of how I, I felt. And I'm not someone who really likes Le- uh, Wes Anderson that much, but you can tell from the, from the fisheye lenses and stuff that he was using that, uh, but yeah, he obviously kind of takes a little bit more from, from Greenaway than I think he would ever hope to admit. But, uh, yeah. Thoughts? Cat? Um, I find it interesting you're noting this. <laughs> um, because like one of the noted, um, influences on Wes Anderson, he always goes, back to Hal Ashby um, with, like, Harold and Maude and those those quick, like, zoom shots and right. um, those types of things, like the reactions. Mm. Um, so I would say maybe, like, in the color palette, I could see that because there's a deliberate colorization, um, especially with use of, like, gels and things of that sort. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, I don't know how far the influence would go there. I would say I would say I think it's a little bit more kind of surface level stuff. I don't think in terms of the level of depth that the that he employs into his filmmaking. I would say like side tracking shots is a big thing, and I think the staging is a big thing. I could see um, the tracking shots a lot. Oh my gosh, big so time. much tracking shots, especially like yes. I I just watched um, Life Aquatic again at like the Enzion last week, and like this just. The camera moving around 
um, taking you through the ship because they had that massive set. Yeah. And, like, it's the same thing with this. Is just, like, you go from, like, outside to inside through the kitchen into the restaurant and then around um, not so much into the bathrooms. Like, there's not really tracking shots into there. It cuts away. I mean, I would also kind of point out that in the Life Aquatic, that set, I don't think is 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 used as that much in that movie at all. It's literally for that that one scene or two scenes it's, or something. It's actually used more than uh, I realized, like okay. watching it before. Like if you go back, like whenever they're just going through the ship, like they'll use that set to just show the progression of them, like moving through it. I guess, yeah, I guess so. I guess so. I mean, I would have to, I would have to literally force myself to watch. Um, <laughs> life aquatic again even though we own it in the house but uh, i don't know i like that one it's when yeah it's good it starts to taper off a bit after that for me yeah i'm not his fan i know asteroid city and stuff's coming out but really he would have to do something i know katie likes him and that's why i kind of brought it up because i was like i feel like there's some (laughs) kind of there's some kind of level of influence here but uh yeah no i'm not i'm not his biggest fan he made the royal tenenbaums and i think that's a fantastic film Agreed. Um, yeah, the yeah. film's excellent. But uh, yeah, um, let's move on. <laughs> well, we were talking about style, and I had some notes, which I'm sure we all knew and, and could could very easily see just from watching the film, is, mm-hmm. um, is the color and the color palette and the different sets that require different colors. And Greenaway said this movie is about color. Yeah, there's a real distinct uh, attention to detail in terms of uh, I guess like the gamut of of cinema discipline being kind of involved here, where it's not just a, you know, it's not just a concentration on like what you're seeing from the camera perspective. It's like from costume to set design to obviously the way that things are lit and the way things are put together and like the transition between certain scenes and locations. That I think is incredibly clever. It's it is really clever, and I was reading about it before we actually watched the movie. And I didn't realize how specific and detailed that it was because you have the different sets that have their different colors. So, like, the exterior of the restaurant is blue. And yeah. then the kitchen of the restaurant is green because it all is within the restaurant well, for the is, most part. Also, the underbelly of the restaurant as well is depicted as, as uh, red when we first... Because it's like the this... You know, I don't think there's no... There's no, um, what was I going to say? Um, there's no, there's no hiding the fact <laughs> what this film is definitely influenced by in the way that the images are obviously put, put forth. And certainly I think that's something we'll obviously talk about because one of the main things, one of the main kind of thematic concerns is like certainly it comes from critics as well. It's obviously from the time this film was made. You know, it's made during the height of uh, Margaret Thatcher's rule, um, her reign (laughs) uh, in the UK at the time. And, uh, you know, greed was seen as a good thing. I mean, certainly it's the the fucking basis of any Tory government that goes into power in the UK. Um, (laughs) But certainly um, there's no hiding the fact that, like, this is a film that's about greed. It's about excess. It's about Stomping on the lower classes is about it's about how the proletariat is fucking nothing but a piece of shit eating scraps from the table of the bourgeoisie up to the point where 
the proletariat just decides that they're so hungry they'll just eat the bourgeoisie instead. So this is very much like what what he's putting out there. Um, but then, you know, I mean, I also kind of put down in my notes, like, I mean, we, you know, we're talking about this now, like they compare it to like Thatcherism. And I feel like a lot of it, it really kind of comes down to like, we live in a capitalist society, certainly in the West. It feels very tired at this point, obviously back then, and certain ways, you know, it's a little bit fresher, a little bit more kind of socially relatable, I suppose, when the time it comes out. But let's just kind of put it this way. Like, if this film was made in the U.S. at the same time, it would be called, you know, be re- you know compared to, like, Reaganism. If it was made now, you'd refer it back to, like, you know, the Trump era and that kind of level of excess. Or you would look at, like, Boris Johnson's, like, Tory party at the same time. Like, it's something that's incredibly relate- you know, relatable now as much as it was back then. But also, it's like a tragic reminder of a like, well we've not really moved forward particularly much. We're kind of still in the same boat even after like 30-odd years or something of our society kind of pretty much stomping on the lower classes and that's kind of really what it is. So, Or, or maybe not even in the same boat, but maybe in a little submarine. Yeah. I guess so. Getting well, the crushed thing, the, well, thing the ocean. And, and I think we're probably worse off than we were when this was made because like that was the beginning of our... Downfall. Downfall. Well, because, you know, you can, uh, comparing it to Reagan, like Reagan kind of destroyed the middle class by yeah. the whole trickle-down economics in the Reaganomics, U.S. And yeah. so, like, we're here because um, we haven't eaten the rich yet. No, but here's the thing is, like, eat the rich, I feel like, is a very kind of... Um, it's 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 a kind of tropey meme sort of term but then i also have seen more recently it's just kind of like we don't need to eat the rich because the rich are doing a very good job of eating themselves are they i think so i mean not, if they're they gonna, can keep doing it not can, all of them are doing that and i feel like no uh yeah i have a lot of thoughts i think yeah <laughs> that's this is probably a deeper conversation that it is i do i want more money that's what i want isn't that what it's all about? Well, I would thing. like to pay less taxes for being like someone who is not even really. I'm like middle class wage maybe, but I am barely getting by. Like why? Oh, how does that? How does that even make sense? Yes. Yeah. No, for me I to would, ha- yeah. I would agree. I don't think it's a case of wanting to have more money, but you want, want more money, you want though. to feel adequately compensated for what you're doing. <laughs> I yeah. Think that's, I think that's all I've ever yearned for, and it's still. Out with my grasp. <laughs> so. Yeah. And minimum wage should be a living wage. End of story. Oh, God. Oh, God. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Otherwise, we will literally start eating each other. I mean, I don't know if anyone really fully understands that, is that we will start eating each other. The tipping point is nigh. The, it is It is coming. <laughs> it is coming. But, uh, Do you yeah. want to hear more about the colors of this film? Yeah, let's. <laughs> oh, wait. Could I go through, like, my notes that I have yes, on my color please. palette? Yes, of course you can. So I uh, I wrote down I was like color palettes restaurant red kitchen green bathroom white outside blue book depository is brown and earth tones hospital is yellow slash beige and those are the only two that are outside of the restaurant is the book depository and the hospital yeah 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 um there's some lovely little visual flourishes which have no sort of rhyme or reason. But I like the fact that they're there. 
I think there's a there's a shot in Blade Runner where okay, so hold on. There's a scene in Blade Runner where uh, Deckard first meets Rachel and he does the Voight comp test and she's coming out from the window and you can see like a shimmering effect that's like just happening and they're just like, what's that there for? And it's like, no, it's just nice. We'll just put it there. And the same shimmering effect is when Helen Mirren finds, you know, what's his face, Michael, um, after he's been murdered. And there's like this weird watery shimmering effect that just kind of happens. That does happen. For no other reason and it's not explainable, but it's certainly never out of place. And you're quite happy with the fact that you're like, oh, isn't that nice? <laughs> Isn't that a lovely thing to that. see? I did notice that. I think I kind of looked at you, but I didn't say anything. I was like, oh, that was weird. But I think in, inside my head, and I, I don't think I wrote it down because I was like, I'm going to remember that. I'm going to be like, I'm going to make a Blade Runner reference today. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime it's also, that you can. Well, it's also it's also the anniversary of that movie by, what's it? What's it, what's it 41. 41 years? Mm-hmm. Holy shit. The greatest film ever made. Anyway, carry on. The thing about the color palettes that's so interesting as well is that it's not just about the set, but every single time one of the actors moves through one of the rooms, their their color of their costume changes. Their wardrobe changes, But it's the same exact costume. Well, Mm. it's... uh, So, like, that took me by surprise because I did not remember that the costume completely changes. And so whenever she goes into the bathroom for the first time and it's completely white, I'm like, wait, did I miss something? Like, is this a different day? Like, is she like, (laughs) did we jump timelines? Like what is happening? And then like, oh yeah, it's just the same outfit, but in white. And then when she goes back out into the restaurant, it's red again. And it might have something to do with like moods. Yeah. Um, different types of moods and colors meaning different things. I mean, that would make sense, too. Yeah, absolutely. Her yeah. cigarettes also change color. They do, yeah. The, uh, I didn't notice that. The papers yeah. around the cigarettes change color. Because when They're she's in the, in the hallway... Ho- yeah. After she comes out of the bathroom, the skins are red, and in other times they're also green. And then she's in the bathroom, they're white. They're white, yeah. yeah. So there's a really nice attention to detail. And I mean, I don't, like, none of it ever feels out of place. And I do understand, like, the minute it does happen and you notice it, it does feel slightly jarring, where you're just kind of like, huh. But then you kind of just take it on the chin and you're like, well everything up to this point has been so fucking mental like it really doesn't matter to me exactly if this is meant to if this is meant to make too much of a way of sense yeah i I wanted to talk about it being fucking mental yeah you know what and you're absolutely right i have a lot of like interesting notes about just oh the the artistry and uh, and oh this this and that but i want to talk about this chef getting shit dog shit shoved in his mouth and all over his body was that a chef i we had to watch it a couple times and i'm pretty sure that they said he was like a chef but he wasn't doing a job or something I oh think, so he's replaced yeah. by borst yeah by the whatever his name yeah, is yeah they richard. got richard borst is yeah. the chef the I kinda, cook i don't yeah <laughs> am i for, wrong i thought that's what i, had I gathered. don't there's no there's no kind of proper explanation in the film as to what that is but he is a cook and for whatever reason, he's maybe just cooked something wrong or not to the Gambinator's liking. <laughs> to the point where Gambin and Tim Roth and the whole fucking litany of folk that he has under his uh, has under his uh, spell um, just 
humiliate this man to 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 within an inch of his fucking moral life. Like he is fucked. By yeah. The end so of this the moment. the movie opens with them like stripping this man down, and we see our first penis in the film mm-hmm. three minutes in. Yep. And then they're smearing dog shit all over his body into his mouth. Yeah. And then there's these two trucks of of meat that are just sitting outside, and it's not really clear if they're like refrigerated trucks, and we find out that they're not. <laughs> yeah, later. they're pretty fresh. It's such a at yeah the po- it's, at the moment. It's such a cool and interesting thing that they revisit much much later into the film, and then you find out it's like the, those trucks never leave, but they're never like there's never any sort of collect. Like it's so fucked up. It's so unbelievably fucked. But this is this is the opening shot of the movie. The movie starts off with a bang, pretty much. It's, it's like it's the initial credit sequence. There's this long jib shot from like what I would say is like the underbelly of the restaurant where it's a bunch of dogs like eating discarded meat and then it jibs <laughs> up from the city underbelly and then we see the Hollandaise, which is obviously the restaurant. But it always always looks like it's an unfinished like front of the restaurant. Like it's always covered in uh in it's like scaffold, but then it's also like sheets of plastic and stuff that are over the top of it. And obviously there's a there's like wind machines because it's all sets and stuff. It's all wind machines, always like it's all fluttering, it's all making noise, it's all kind of like looking cool and stuff like that. And then these trucks show up, then a car shows up. And then obviously the the moment happens with this uh, chef that they strip off naked and they immediately cover him in dog shit. Yeah, it's <laughs> so. it's like a really chaotic beginning and it's hard to adjust. Like I f- I feel like like going into it, you're just like you're you're thrown into the middle of this chaos mm. and you have to be like oh oh. There's a lot of Cockney happening, and <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> this man is getting stripped down and beat up and smeared with, it kind of looks like chocolate, but I'm guessing it's dog shit because there's dogs yeah. in the pr- proximity, mm-hmm. and it's just like this whole thing, and then just like the aftermath of it is just like they, this swarm of bees, swarm of thugs, like they they finish what they're doing and they go inside, and then the the rest of the staff just it's like a normal day they they come in the guy who's completely naked covered in dog shit he wanders yeah. in and then they hose him down and help him like cleanse himself but it's just like that's when you get a moment to breathe that cockney type accent i cannot do Oh my gosh, so much cockney it was there were so many things that i missed the first time i watched it because i am not very good at picking up on Cockney and then like the second time I was like oh yeah that's what happened that was what was happening here because like some of it is just so like chaotic in the beginning and they talk so fast there were times where I said in the beginning to Ryan I wish this had subtitles and it's not because I don't understand it's because they are speaking so fast and I feel like I need to catch up yeah because I'm trying to take everything in and it's like it's yeah it's insane they're we watched it a few times we when did, we yeah, first we had started to, it because yeah. our dog, as we've talked about before, hates other dogs, other dogs on, on the, the screen. TV, and especially <laughs> yeah. when the dogs on the screen actually are fighting, there's an actual dog fight happening on the screen while oh, a man wild. is being stripped Absolutely naked wild. by thugs. Yeah. 
again, covered in poo-poo, which was chocolate mousse. You're right. It was chocolate mousse. Yeah, that's right. what it looked like But it was to poop. Me. It was dog poop. <laughs> um, Tim Roth is dressed like a fancy pirate. Um, <laughs> and then uh, Gambin, Michael Gambin, gets the dog poop on his hand and slaps yeah. Tim Roth in the face. And Oof. he gets poop on his face. Yeah. And then Michael Gambin, the, you know, the head gangster pisses on the chef yeah and oh yeah i, for, I forgot yeah he he pisses all he over says he needed a, yeah. a drink neither we drank that and it's a wash it's Al- down his albert dessert is the is his albert is the gangster. character's name yeah gambon yeah michael gambon's um i mean is this not like his seminal role Really? I mean, this might be his greatest role. It's probably his greatest role. Because... But no one will remember this. It'll always be Harry Potter. No, it's the the problem is, is like, Come it'll on. just... Well, what do you, you mean? Don't in, like it. in Harry Potter, he plays... He plays the replacement from... Uh, he's, he's plays Dumbledore for most of the films. Like, because he replaced Richard Harris after yes. he died. Yeah, okay, well... I would rather I would rather he's not remembered for that. Well, he would rather be choice. remembered for that. Yeah, well, I know I don't have a choice. Yeah, until they make this available on streaming platforms yeah. for people. That's yeah, when that's people true. actually watch them and like know about them. Yeah, because this is all like, and you know, we're he's talking... like he's like a machine gun artist. Like he never stops talking. No, he doesn't stop talking throughout the entire. It's film. like two hours of just Gambon, just riffing like fuck, like crazy Cockney gangster stuff. Yeah, and it's kind of an endurance test with that yeah. because you're just like, okay, there's a lot going on, there's chaos, and this guy is just like being really foul and just talking and like fucking with everybody. Like he's always in people's faces and like yeah. pouring stuff on his wife's um, food. I mean, how many people can say they've slapped Dame Helen Mirren in the face with a menu? Oof, that when that happened, I was like, holy fuck. Because it even looked like it took her by surprise when it yeah. happened. Yeah, because I was just like, oh, shit. I mean, he punches her in the stomach. Yeah, he fucks like, her he up. He slaps her in the face. There's... Everyone's getting beat up. Like, little kids yeah. are getting beat up. There's a... Oh, the belly button. <laughs> no one's... No, yeah, no one's safe in this film <laughs> no. from the Gambinator. He's like, quite, he's, yeah. quite horrible. <laughs> He, he is, might be one of the wor- one of the worst characters he is I've ever one of, seen. Yeah, he is one of the greatest screen villains of all time. Yes, like he's agreed. Just, yeah. yeah. Um and he's and He's amazing at it. And it's yeah. like I kinda liked him too, but he is a horrible piece of shit. I mean, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna put myself out there and say like he is effectively the main saving grace of this film because I don't know who would replace him in this film in order to deliver a better performance. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't really know who that person would I, be. I couldn't imagine someone else carrying this like he did. Well, it's yeah. interesting because we were... It, it was something I wasn't going to bring up because... But then I mentioned it to Ryan because you should talk about this. So... The the four title characters in the film were named after the actors that Greenaway actually originally intended. So... Uh, Richard the Cook was for Richard Boehringer, and it was the only original choice that actually was cast. And he's very good. Yeah. Yeah, he's um, very good. Albert was named after Albert Finney. Which, so, yeah, I also well, think would have been, it might have been a really good choice, but I'm also not particularly interested in seeing the Albert Finney version of this character. <laughs> um, Georgina was named for Georgina Hale, which was his wife. Yeah. Um, wait a minute. 
No, it wasn't. Georgina wasn't his wife, but it was uh, for Georgina Hale. Sorry, I got confused with wife. Yes. Um, <laughs> and then Michael was named after Michael Gambon. So Michael Gambon was originally intended to play the lover. Yes. But then ended up playing Albert. Oh. So, yeah. Kind of weird. Yeah, so there was, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I like I like the fact that Greenaway had the balls to just be like, well, these are exactly who I'm writing these roles for, and then he was expecting to get them. But then they ended up kind of swapping roles and stuff like that. Except I mean, for who, the cook. Except for the cook. <laughs> but then the cook's like one of the best the best character actors in the in the film in general, and then obviously Gambon just brings a fucking tour de force and whether or not you love or hate like Helen Mirren I think Helen Mirren does a very good job who hates Helen yeah Mirren? I was gonna ask I don't I don't think I've ever met anyone who doesn't like Helen Mirren I mean uh, Do you I mean, know what I've Ryan seen... said to me you weren't here Kat I don't know Ryan if we can said... repeat that story because I don't I can't say that and put it out there and then I might get in trouble you're not gonna get in trouble I might get in trouble because I'm gonna okay don't he... even say it because I'm gonna cut it out I'm going to cut it out because I, I, well, wait, right, okay, I'll tell you the story. So here, here's the, I used to work at. <laughs> what the hell? I was like, uh, I was just going to give you like a very uh, brief glance of what he said. <laughs> that's well, not going to bite you in the arse later. I don't have a problem with Helen Mirren. Thanks, Katie, because we are going to cut this out. I can't put this out in the, in the general public. I can't do that. You do realize that I, like the way that I said it was perfectly yeah, it was like fine. Vague. I, Keep it vague. Yeah. I guess not. You, yeah. you definitely didn't need to go that far. So <laughs> fine. you can keep in a little bit because it's no, funny. No specifics. Yeah. <laughs> so there is a love story within this, which is uh, beautiful, sexy, gross, and tragic all together. And it's obviously we have, you know, the wife and the lover. And I... Really, really like Michael the Lover because he's so basic. Yeah, Alan Howard, who plays a bookkeeper in the movie. Yeah, and he, they see each other for the first time in the restaurant. Like, you know, and it's always chaos when Gammon's around and he's always around. He's always there, always making a scene, always saying something. Super, super loud. But like this, this chance meeting is incredibly innocuous and it, purely stands out just completely by the fact that like Gambon is eating like not only just the scenery but obviously everything within the scenery and obviously all of the air that everyone is consuming at every single moment in time in every single scene that he's in well they also don't really talk to each other uh the the wife and the lover i think it's it's like half an hour into the film or later don't they well, have that conversation they together they, they don't do, yeah. they don't talk to each other until um, Gambin like introduces them. Like he forces Michael to come over and introduces him to Georgina. And then afterwards they have that conversation. They're like, oh, he introduced us. Like this is the first time. Like he broke our silence. There's also this beautiful yeah. little self referential moment where they're, he's talking about a film within the film where he's like, he, the the that character did not talk until thirty minutes into the movie, which is funnily enough thirty minutes into the two hour cut that we watched, which I like. I like the fact that a film can be that self referential about itself, which um, is about the time that we see his penis too, because it, I have it thirty four minutes in. Yep, we yes. see Michael's penis and so, a fully nude Marin. Yes. So when yes. 
so just obviously the preface this the next few times that we do see uh penis and stuff it's usually accompanied by a fully nude helen mirren and i know laura kind of put out there that like if we are gonna see any sort of let's just say like i'm gonna you know not to be crass but like bush we better see some dick is pretty yes. much what you said. Yeah. Absolutely. If I am going to see anyone's <laughs> vagina, um, I need to see a penis. Yeah. So I'm, but obviously there is a, uh, way more penis in this movie than there is a vagina. Yeah. Yeah. It's, Which is beautiful. Yeah. It, I'm here it, for yeah. it. Absolutely. As it, as it stands, this film probably sits about second to say short bus. I would say, in terms of like the level of amount of penis stuff that we see in it, yeah. Um, so far, so, I mean, there's definitely so far, more. Yes. Oh no, there's so th- much that we have to uncover. It there's so eventually. much more to there. There's so much for more to explore. But um, but yes, the, the the film, like, let's just put it this way: the film follows a very simplistic structure where it is. We're in the restaurant, they're all having a meal, there's a lot of conversing and stuff like that. And a lot of the dialogue, like, I would second, I would second, like, Gambin's performance and, like, the level, the quality of the dialogue to what Ben Kingsley is receiving in uh, Sexy Beast, that Jonathan Glazer movie. Like, the writing in this film is exquisite in terms of just like the way the dialogue is received the way the dialogue is performed like it's insane the dialogue is mostly uh uh, put forth by gambit it's so good (laughs) so unbelievably good and it's... it's just um a lot of it's very kind of throwaway i mean there's there's one moment here where like there's a conversation and like this line just like spoke to me for whatever fucking reason just popped out and it was something about he threatened someone. He says, I'm going to make you eat your own shit after forcing it out of your dick like toothpaste. Oh, I didn't even hear that line in the film. I didn't either. I wrote it down and I thought it was amazing. But it's just like this man at like the height of his like pomposity and wow. just like pulling this stuff out. And he feels like he can just get away with doing fucking anything. I mean, there's that, that that's the same point where... Uh, Tim Roth is looking a little bit ill because he's eating seafood and he like literally just like vomits onto his plate for no reason. He's like, he's like, for fuck's sake, you, you, you get a little bit of decorum at the table. Don't go sitting there fucking, you know, vomiting on your plate. I was going to do a Gambon impression the entire episode, but I honestly can't do it. <laughs> I honestly can't. It's so tiring. <laughs> it's yeah, that, so sounds tiring. Like, that sounds exhausting to do and also to to uh converse with there was a there's also a lovely moment and it's just because we're getting to this because there's a lot of really kind of weird things that happen in the movie as well it's like one of the guys let's see the gangsters he's going on about like i can't i can't believe it i haven't had celery this good and gambin's like that's not celery it's asparagus you know all this sort of stuff which i thought was hilarious well yeah you've got i mean and also the reason that we're in this restaurant in the first place is because the gangster gambin bought this restaurant because he thinks that, you know, having nice and fancy things means that you're a nice and fancy person. Yes. And so he's just trying to put on all these airs. But you have Michael, the lover, who has been eating at this restaurant every single day, you know, for God knows how many years. And so, you know, the reason that he's meeting Helen Mirren in the first place is because gangster Mike or gangster Gambin 
bought this restaurant. Yeah. So immediately, like day one, the first night, I assume that they're eating at this restaurant, you know, the gangsters, is when Helen Mirren clocks this bookish dude hanging out yeah. in the corner that's been there, you know, for years probably. Yeah. Hanging out, eating dinner, and um, and reading his books. Reading his books at dinner yeah. alone in his yeah. very brown earth tone suit. Yes, his brown blazer that he never doesn't yeah. wear. That brown, that's his color palette. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's a it's a suit. It's a suit set. Oh, is it a whole suit? Yeah, yeah. yeah. His very baggy slacks that he wears with it. <laughs> yeah, very different to the kind of outfits like the. Well, Tim Roth is the only one that was like dressed like a pirate that time. But they all wear outfits that kind of look like that painting that's behind them in the restaurant. Yes, I think so. It's that like... was the kind of how they designed a lot of the costumes was from that particular painting, which was the banquet of the officers of the St. George Militia Company in 1616. Yes. By Franz Halls. Yes. Another another Flemish painter. But it, I guess it's like, it's a reflection of the decadence that's going on inside the, the restaurant as well, which is, yeah, effectively what that is. Because like, that painting itself is very much an updated version of, like, The Last Supper as well, which is kind of a very similarly kind of themed sort of painting as song, so... Oh, there was a couple of moments where they were all standing around, like, Michael Gambon, like, at the table that yeah. looked very much Last Supper-y. Yeah. Um, so... One, but it's, yeah. One yeah. thing with, like, the color and, like, going back to his brown suit, because, like, his his suit matches his surroundings of his home and where he stays, which is the depository, the book depository. But, like, everyone else, when they enter into a certain room, usually the color palette of whatever they're wearing changes to that room. Mm-hmm. But yeah. he's the only one where his his um, clothing, it never changes. Yeah. Yes, yes. Which I, I think is like kind that. of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I f- yeah, it also, it also lends to the argument that there is a yeah, there's an incredible focus on just the attention to detail and the characterization because Greenaway's very much a proprietor of film as a visual medium. As much as like there's a lot of dialogue and there's a lot of like very well delivered dialogue in this, and this is maybe the most accessible film of his because it's got quite a relatively simplistic thematic story, and you can like you know. You can apply it to yourself and you can understand it and it makes all sense and stuff like that. But also, he is very much a visuals filmmaker. He thinks that films should be visual, which is also something I agree with. Is like It is a visual medium and everything that you see should help to convey the amount of information that you should be seeing as opposed to... And I guess a, like a level of procrastination um, within the, the the writing of the film. Um, so that's something I kind of I, I definitely agree with and I admire in his he, work. He said that he wouldn't be a filmmaker if paintings could have soundtracks. Yes, basically. Yes, I I'm not much. a direct quote, but roundabout that. Yeah, um, yeah. I do. I like his approach to to filmmaking. I think that's that's kind of the main thing that I do. I, I think I think talk... it's a lot of things that people forget nowadays making films and effectively like <laughs> well it's it's more like the argument between like do we make films as art or do we make films as as content um you know like that's kind of how I'm seeing kind of the modern age of filmmaking now so I want to talk about um the kitchen 
the big bagels on the wall and the sex scene, <laughs> uh, which is the second penis scene of yeah. this film, because they the first time that they get together um, is in the bathroom. So you're in the white bathroom, yes. they're in the stall together, the lover and the wife. Oh yeah, she's mm. she's gonna like give him a blowjob or something, but Absolutely. they don't really get yeah. too far. Yeah, but I think Ryan kept saying while we were watching, "Is not yet, Laura. Not yet. It's not coming out yet." Yeah. And I'm like, "Well, it came. I mean, we already saw one, so I wouldn't be surprised." But no, I think you, you see some of the hair around a his bit. shaft, but no. You see, yeah, you see. There's a <laughs> there's Just like, a bit of a little little peak of shaft hair <laughs> when he's like trying to button up whenever um, that scene Albert was like storms in. By the, the way, because it's yeah. all about these two people trying to have an affair under Michael Gambon's nose because she thinks that if she's doing it when he's like around and, and it, that he'll never notice. Yeah. He's that's too like the, involved uh, in his own world, which it, it makes sense. Like her explanation yeah. of like, well, if I'm doing it like right when he's around, then mm-hmm. he's not really going to be paying attention because he's so involved in messing with other people and putting other people down and just being like a, a general asshole <laughs> it's just so funny that she yeah. keeps saying you know oh i'm gonna go to the bathroom and he doesn't like her see he yeah. doesn't like her smoking cigarettes around him no because i guess it's not it's not proper right well there's so also he just thinks that she's smoking in the bathroom she's smoking in the bathroom or she's just shitting all the time <laughs> well the thing is it's like bringing up yeah. about the fact that like did you wipe your bum do yeah. you need help wiping your bum did you wipe yeah. the toilet seat for he- before you sat down we don't know where these people have been well there's a obsessed. lot of yeah there's a lot of um um, there's a lot of, like, fixation on, like, her anus from, like, Gambon's character in this movie, and then we kind of find out later that, like, he's violated her in certain ways regarding, like, you know, that sort of, that sort of foul well, play. And she also hints at his, like, um, fixation with her asshole and, like, mm-hmm. um how he might not be attracted to women yes. in that way. And yes. so maybe a lot of his like jerkiness and his anger might come from repressed homosexuality. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of hinted at a little bit. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't like any women, regardless of whether or not he likes his wife. He doesn't like any women in this movie. I mean, he stabs a woman in the face for talking back to him oh, at one yeah, point. Oh, yeah, that fork. <laughs> yeah, that fork. <laughs> And uh, he has he has no time whatsoever. He sees women as like secondary in the human race. Like he just does not like women generally. Well, they're um, they're merchandise, and he he called Helen Mirren basically his property. He's an because yeah, he's like you better not be touching yourself. That's mine. He refers to her as like an asset, not as a person, effectively. So so. In the in the scene, whenever um, like he drags Pup outside, Pup is the boy, who, the wee singing boy who likes to sing soprano <laughs> while which, washing the dishes. Which <laughs> side note, one of my favorite things about this movie that I like remembered from watching it before was like I want to watch this again because of the little albino boy. Yeah, <laughs> who's like singing soprano. <laughs> but anyways, like whenever. Um, Albert uh, Gambin, who plays Albert, he like drags Pup out with with uh, Georgina, and then yeah. like he beats her up, and then he's trying to like get 
her and pop to do something sexual it's It's really weird and then like it's it's far away like you can't see like the details of what's happening in the car really but it seems like he either rapes her or obviously he's abusing her in some way because then she has bruises in the next scene yeah Yeah. but i i wanted to know if if y'all thought like that was like a rape had happened or so what I, had occurred during that? I would, I would, I mean, I hasten to use the word borderline whenever kind of referring to anything that might be distinguished as rape. But for the most part, like what you do see is that he beats the living fuck out of her and she has bruises all over her body in the next scene. But yeah, I mean, what we're dealing with here is like he beats her black and blue and he abuses her. He violates her. I mean, he's probably raping her on a nearby daily basis. Well, she goes into detail about it, yeah. like how there's objects um, that are in their bedroom. And oh, if she yeah, wouldn't insert them into herself, then he would do it. Yeah. And so she was like, well, it doesn't hurt as much when I do it. Mm-hmm. And so like that just shows like the kind of world that she's living in. Yeah. But um, she also, whenever he introduces... Michael to Georgina, she like starts pushing the line a little bit by saying like, oh, I see a gynecologist and she starts talking (laughs) about like she she hints at like the abuse causing miscarriages, I think. Yeah, because he's he's desperate for them to have children as well. But it's obvious that this this kind of cyclical um abuse that seems to be going on in their relationship is obviously the primary reason that's preventing them from from having children. Yeah, because she has the three... She says, I had three miscarriages, and the doctor said that, like, my insides, like, it's not going to happen. They're broken, yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, talking about... Well, I think we can go into... I mean, I guess they kind of, like, we kind of skimmed over it, but obviously the, the last big scene was them in the... In the bagel room, the big bagel room is what I refer to it as, where they're completely naked. But oh, right. So yeah, uh, the lover and and Georgina are yeah. in that. They're in the kitchen because they mm-hmm. they're in a couple of different rooms in the kitchen that have different kind of backgrounds. This one had big bagels on the wall that I remember yeah. specifically. There's yeah. another one later on that has uh, uh, pheasants pheasants on the wall. Oh yeah. yeah, we get a tour of the kitchen. Oh yeah, via their sex spots. Because this one's really thirty four cool. yeah. minutes in. Let me just get uh-huh. that out there. But it's... I really like this moment in the movie as well, though, because it yes. it felt like a genuine kind of lovers moment and they're completely i mean i wrote it down here as naked um because i thought it was funny but also like yeah it's a very like you know because we talk about the staging and stuff i like i implore anyone just to watch the movie because i'm not i'm not fucking describing every frame of this film like whatsoever but there's a lovely kind of like nicholas rogue type um like edited sequence for this film where as they're making love it's intercut with images of the the sous chefs or the prep chefs cutting like vegetables and stuff yes and there's a kind of weird sensuality kind of going on with how it intercuts with say like um you know helen and uh, alan having having quite hard sex with each other to obviously a chef cutting up a cucumber 
Which, for whatever reason, I was just like, oh, that fucking works. <laughs> yeah, it's something that you would imagine, <laughs> like, yeah. watching people, you know, making love or just or kissing or being intimate with each other. Yeah. Totally naked in a restaurant mm-hmm. where there's lots of food being prepared. Yes. And seeing, yeah, that cut with chopping of a cucumber, you think that would be quite frightening and i refer to like nicholas but it wasn't yeah i refer to like nicholas rogue because obviously <laughs> in 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 don't in don't look now there's a sex scene between dollar sutherland i can't remember her name that's intercut with them having sex whilst intercut with them getting dressed and ready for the evening which i think is very clever um but yeah anyway carry on it's always a scary thing when they get together because they'll even time it you know, oh, I only have four minutes. I only have five minutes because that's how long she can get away with like being in the toilet. I think it's really, I think it's really nice. This I think whole so too. Idea where it's just kind of like it's we have five minutes that could make or break this relationship, and or their he makes, lives, or his life, and it's just kind of th- this idea that he, his attention span or what interests him could be made or broken within five minutes because he compares that to how he felt about a character he saw in a movie where the character didn't speak, but then within five minutes, he completely lost interest. So it was kind of more a case of just like, well, if we don't lose interest within five minutes, we're obviously made for each other. But Albert is always after her. She's in the toilet and she wouldn't even be in the toilet for very long. And he is following her. He goes into the bathroom to try Mm -hmm. and find her. He goes into the kitchen to try and find her. And it seems like everyone's kind of aware that there's something going on, even in the early bits, but no one says anything because no everyone says anything. fucking hates yeah. him. No one likes him. So no one's going to be on his side no. uh, necessarily. And Well, and then the, the staff is like... Totally on their side. Yeah, they're like, we get it. Facilitating this affair, which yeah. is interesting. Never was said. It was never a conversation. But the, the chef or the cook um, and all the kitchen staff... They're like totally fine with it. Oh, yeah. here's a little spot. They'll even walk through. There was that one moment where they, didn't they go through to get a pheasant? Mm-hmm. And then they're like totally naked, just, yeah. you know, enjoying each other's bodies. Well, and then they had to get even more involved whenever. So, like, an hour into the movie. So, we're halfway through the movie, is when the um, one of the thugs' girlfriends sees her. With her lover. Yeah, this is the poor woman that gets stabbed in the face. Yeah, she gets stabbed yeah. in the face with a fork. But, like, she tells Albert, like, oh, your wife's, like, screwing that, like, bookish guy that's always yeah. reading over there. And, like, so the staff has to get involved in, like, making sure that they don't get caught together. Yes. And, yeah. like, this involves, like, the one guy getting in a truck, backing it up to... It's, like, full of rotting meat, which I'm really not sure why there's a truck oh, of rotting meat. so good. Yeah, and that they, whole part Yeah, they back, they back up the, the truck of rotting meat. The cook shoves them into the freezer for a second and then, like, maneuvers them around. And so, like, the whole staff is helping them to escape yeah. this like misdirection for for Albert while Albert's running around screaming, I'll kill him and then I'll eat him. Yes. Yeah. Over yes. and over and over again, <laughs> running through the kitchen, 
breaking everything. Weird foreshadowing. Interesting. <laughs> but yeah, because I I didn't know what was going to happen while we were watching it. Oh, yeah. really? And then I kept hearing him say that, and I even wrote it down. I was mm. like, why is he saying I'm going to eat yeah. it? That's weird. The thing is, yeah. That, That's a crazy thing yeah, to say. I'd seen... I'd seen <laughs> It's a very odd threat to it's me. An odd, yeah. It's an odd threat. It's also well, probably do... one of the most intimidating threats. It's they... also it's maybe less intimidating than uh, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> well, they do talk about it uh, earlier in the film. Is Albert is when he's threatening like Tim Roth. It's yeah. like, I'll, I'm going to make you eat balls. Like, I'm going to make you eat someone's like balls. bollocks and stuff. You yeah. know? Yeah. And so there's, a, there's talk even early on about eating he makes really strange <laughs> threats. Very weird threats, but it's also kind of like, it's this shroud of homosexuality as well. It's like, he's going to eat this dude. He's going to eat your balls. He's going to cut off your dick. He's going to do all this sort of stuff. It all gets a little bit gay. It all kind of adds to his his character as well from the things that we spoke about. Well, it's also like it plays into his character of like wanting to own other people. Yeah. yeah. And so like, yeah. I think the ultimate like, like owning someone else is eating them, consuming them, so yes. then they won't exist anywhere else. Yeah. 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 This whole moment where, you know, Albert's running around saying he's going to eat the guy for having sex with his wife yeah. is really, I know we've already uh, kind of talked about it, but I just think it's so beautiful because these two people are in this intimate moment and then they're getting chased around and just trying to survive. And they're naked the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> and they're just naked. And it's not even a thought. They're just like the 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 cook is, is chauffeuring around this way. Other people yeah. are chauffeuring around this way. And they're naked. And he's like, I'll grab your clothes. Don't worry. But he never they never get their clothes. Mm -hmm. And you're right. They get put into that disgusting van. That fucking shot. They're covered shot in just like. unbelievably cool. It's so cool. It's so cool. It looks like a womb in hell. Like, it genuinely it, yeah. does. Well, yeah, and it looks fucking I think, horrific. I think that is by design, because it yeah. looks so much like a womb, and then it's like they're, it's like a rebirth. Absolutely, Like, yeah. they're, already, they're already naked, so they're in their birthday suit. You know, you're getting born out of this womb from hell, and then they get sprayed down. Just yeah. like the first chef. Yeah. yeah. And this yeah. is, yeah, this is also effectively what is the, uh, the, third penis scene i don't know if we're counting the last scene as being a penis scene as well but this is well it all kind of goes this together. is a real scene yeah it all kind of goes together this is about an hour 18 minutes in hour 18 hour 19 and they hose them down after coming out of the truck um and i don't know i don't know what it is about these trucks but we are shown the degradation of these trucks over the course of the movie as well because these trucks never leave obviously the front of the the front of the restaurant and there was this weird moment kind of earlier on and i kind of i put this down in inverted commas it's like surreal imagery but there was a there's like a woman sucking on a giant ice cube and there's like pig's heads and stuff like behind her so obviously this is the same truck that obviously they get they get stowed away in do you wonder um, if it's because he's like a new restaurateur because he just took over this restaurant and it looks like he's changing the name Right? Yeah, he, is, he yeah. has a yeah. on signs. He's going to change the name of the restaurant. Yeah, he was yeah. going to change it to his name and the cook's name, right? Yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah. So I'm wondering if that's just him not knowing how to run a restaurant, is where he's like, I don't. 
it's like, do oh. I have to order all this it's food? Like, oh, I do forgot. I have to get these drugs oh, out I've, of here? I delivered all this food, but I forgot to put it in the chiller. <laughs> yeah. Like, who orders yeah, all the food? Kind of like Tesco. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I we did mention about Pup, because the restaurant, even after these two escape... The restaurant's feeding them, <laughs> which is really weird because like they're walking all the food over to the bookseller's place, which I don't I don't know how far away it is. I mean, yeah, be, they're not yeah. very good at like covert operations because they have no. like pup who is like the most recognizable person. Yes, um, delivering this food and yeah. walking it, and then he is like, "Oh, can I you know borrow a book?" And like the books have the address of the depository on the them stamp in them yeah. <laughs> not a great place gonna, to hide and i'm gonna point this out as well is that pop looks like a cyberpunk version of the milky boy kid i don't know what that means milky boy kid what milky is that boy kid the milky boy kid who's strong and tough the only one that is good enough the creamiest milk the milk the whitest bar is this is this a a Scottish? The, the Milky Bar Kid. Everyone knows the Milky Bar Kid, right? No. Nope. Anyway. So, do you know... <laughs> okay. Do you know, do you know of Milky Bars? No. Yeah, like a Milky Way? No, no, no. Milky Bars are like a white... They Bars were like bar. a white chocolate. Uh, no, just a plain white chocolate. You, you must have white chocolate here, right? Yeah. We do have yeah. white chocolate, but I've never heard so of this the Milky must be, Bar. Yeah, this must be a... This must be a... So, the Milky Bar Kid was this... Let's put the word out there. Aryan child who had glasses and was dressed as a cowboy and had blonde hair and like dead white skin, and they called him the Milky Bar Kid. You're gonna have to like post a picture of I'll this have to kid put something on up. Yeah. whenever you post this episode. Just have a picture of the Milky Bar. We'll kid. do. We'll do a side by side comparison. And I only just came out with it, but then also I was like, oh, no one's no one's got Milky Bars over here, so that's an albino. Yeah, he's an albino. Yeah, let's put it out that way. Yeah. Is he a soprano? Or if it was, yeah, me, myself, so- and Irene, they would call him a Q-tip. Um, but yes, yeah, same oh, thing. Yeah, that movie, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, oh my God, it's a giant Q-tip. Yeah, because, because they get the most obvious uh, delivery boy uh, for their meals. Yeah. And yep, he took the book. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they're going to find out where he was, which is... What? Okay, and this well, is tor- when they this tor- is when they, they torture, torture that the boy. boy they torture and take the boy. All of his buttons off of his. Yeah, outfit. and then he's like, "There's no buttons left. I guess we're gonna have to like get the belly button." And I was like, "Oh, oh I thought he said. I thought he meant like his dick. No belly button. No, he was gonna like pluck button. out his belly button. I thought they were gonna castrate that child. No, genuinely. No. But like, like a feel... button, like a button, but like I... a button dick. Yeah, no, because he's I... a kid." <laughs> I felt no. like I feel like a like scooping out someone's belly button is like way like <gasps> what? <laughs> like, well, scooping out a belly button seems like certain death. Cutting off a penis less so, but also a bigger is power it certain move. Death? What happens if someone cuts I feel like out your that's belly like your button? Insides. No, but it's just on your belly. It depends on what sort of belly button do you have. Do you have an innie or an outie? I would assume it's an innie. Mine's an innie because it's inside. 
correct. Yes. I, but okay. Some well, people that's have fine. They could cut out the belly button. That's fine. I genuinely thought they were going to cut his little wiener off. No, they didn't. Oh, no. They no. were talking about his belly button. It's just okay. His belly he button. just talked so fast. It's <laughs> also like, it's a weirdly, a belly button's like a weirdly sensitive area yeah. on a human's body as yeah. well. The idea of them sticking a knife anywhere near that kind of made me feel a little bit gross. Well, that whole thing is very upsetting. Yes. Just this this young boy <laughs> who is so scared. Let's and just make he sure that, buttons yeah. in his mouth. Let's just make sure that you know it's incredibly upsetting it's to watch. It's very upsetting. It's and then the kid funny. passes out because <laughs> he's so scared. Well, he and does, also, yeah, like, he is the, the most innocent um, thing in this movie. Like, he's yes. oh, a yes. little angelic boy who doesn't do anything to anyone and he just likes to sing soprano while he's, like, cleaning dishes. Like, mm-hmm. he doesn't do anything wrong and then he gets tortured. Yeah. Yes. He's doing something nice and then I mean, and then Michael, yeah. our lover, is knows he's doing something that he shouldn't be doing. Yeah. He's doing it for love, I but here, assume. But here's the thing. There's also there's also the, this uh, gradual um, change in attitude towards Gambin, where even his, like, henchmen realize that he's doing... He's he's going further than than they would they would be expecting to. So they Except also, for Tim Roth, who's like, start. whatever, man. <laughs> Tim, yeah, yeah, Tim Roth is his, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll climb the mountain with you, sir. Like, I'll do whatever I need to do. Um, even though he treats him like, he's, he treats him worse than any of the other ones, other than Helen Mirren, obviously. Yeah. He treats him like a fucking piece of shit. Well, it's because it's like his little, like, protege who's gonna follow him no matter what. Yes, yes. I mean, uh, uh, by the time you get to the end of the movie, he only has two, let's say, henchmen uh be it <laughs> one of them is tim roth and the other one is liz smith who's the who's the grandmother from uh <laughs> from uh, the royal family theme so yeah oh one thing that i thought was strange whenever he's talking about it he's talking about like the so is bookkeeper like a term in the uk mm-hmm. not okay because i was just like in yeah. the us bookkeeper is someone who keeps like like an accountant yeah yeah I, and no. so i was just like is he just using this word incorrectly like i was <laughs> yes right. well he he's he i mean it, i think it's very literal he just keeps books and like he sells like he corner. sells uh he sells books well cuz like his other his henchman says like oh what are we going to do about like this bookseller is going to be a problem and yeah. he says bookseller versus bookkeeper and so i was yeah. like is this another thing that shows like how dumb albert is or is that yeah. like a term that's used in the uk i mean i would use the word accountant kind of more back home bookkeeper does is is also used for someone who's an accountant as well like and if you're you know you keep your books up to date and stuff like that but he's yeah he's more like a yeah he's more like a bookseller in this movie so yeah, so whenever he's talking about it, he says, like... <laughs> <laughs> I tried my best. That was really rough. And I'm, I'm not even going to cut that out. Gross. You're not even going to cut that out. <laughs> no. oh, so whenever God. he's talking about the bookkeeper, he mentions, he's like, oh, he's 40. Same age as me. And I'm like, what? <laughs> yes. These people are supposed to be 40? Yeah. And I looked it up and Helen Mirren was 44. Yeah. Yeah, I was. I also had to look up how old Helen Mirren is now because well, I you know made, Helen yeah, you Mirren. You made some comments. No, I yeah. think Helen Mirren is 
so beautiful and I think <laughs> she's so sexy, but she's been older for a long time. Yeah, like, she's kind of like Maggie Smith. Like it feels like she's been like 80 years old for yeah. like our entire lives. Which is weird because Liz Smith in the movie is only meant to be 32. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, I think she looks incredible. She's got a great body, still does. Um, and yeah, she's, she does look good in the film. She's a, I mean, it's it's Helen Mirren. She's incredible. So she's a, yeah, she's a national treasure at this point. She really is. Yeah. Um, um, but I don't know what the I don't know what the point of that was. She's just great. Yeah, she looks. Are you saying she looks good for oh, because, her age in the because film? Because they're, they're all like forty. I thought that was very funny because um, Albert was so upset the fact that she was having an affair with that guy because he's the same age. Like, if, it was a lo- if it was a younger guy, I'd be less upset. Yeah, he was he saying, said. like, if it was a younger guy, it would be fine because it would just be sex. But since it's a man who's, like, my age, that means that it means something more and it's not going to just be, like, a passing fling. Well, yeah. I, uh, yeah, I always thought it, was, it wasn't so much about their age because I don't think age is so much of the barrier here it's like it's that she can't stand his character anymore so that she's she's migrated to i mean i guess in like gambin's mind or like his his idealization is that he's he's a smart man he's like a well-dressed man he's kind of like this as opposed to obviously his idealized sense of who who gambin is meant to kind of be in the movie you know um a lesser kind of individual well it seems like she's probably done this before as well because she said that she's left him three times to be fair before. i'm not fucking surprised i really am not well yeah you know it he's making her put like a champagne bottle up her butthole like i probably yeah, not want to yeah. stick around but then you know you're no. in a really dangerous situation yeah well in the most dangerous situation um whenever you're in a domestic abuse um situation like that is usually when you... Tr- whoop. <laughs> oh, fuck, I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> the most dangerous um, part is when you try to leave. Right. Is when you usually yeah, get murdered. Uh, yeah. It's when the emotions run high. It's, uh, yeah. It's kind of fucked up. It's horrible. But, I mean... <sighs> Is it as horrible as uh, what happens to Michael, the bookseller? Yeah, I was kind of waiting for us to kind of just get yeah, to this well, bit. Yeah, well, we could, we could go into you that. Know, like, you know he's going to die. Yeah, he's doomed. Yeah. Even without thinking, like, you know, because it, it just makes sense because he says he's going he's gonna to kill him, he's going to eat him, he's having sex with his wife, and also a, yeah, I knew he was going to... this is a revenge gonna, story. Like, knew, it has to end a certain way. I knew he was going to kill him when you saw the, like, kind of the front of the bookshop where they are, where they're having this affair, where they're where they're holding up. Yeah. When she leaves to go see Pup at the hospital, which was a stupid move, but maybe it was a smart move because... Well, she would have been dead, too. She would have died as well, probably, or made to watch the whole thing go down. Yeah. But all of the gangsters go to the bookshop, and you see him, you see Michael boarding up the shop, right? He locks the doors after mm. Georgina leaves. He puts a big stick on the inside, like boarding up the doors, like yeah, to um, lock glass on glass, glass doors. doors. <laughs> yeah, glass doors. He is not that smart Which, because if he was, he would not have stayed there. And I've not realized this until now. But you remember when Gambin and his thugs are eventually kind of they're they're forced to leave the restaurant. 
when that last person who's got the pie, um, he leaves the exact same set of doors that he closes behind himself at the restaurant are, are an almost exact mirror of the doors to the bookkeeping place. And oh. I don't know if they are meant, if that scene is before Michael dies or just after he dies. So there's kind of like a, a relative kind of association there, which is weird. And again, this is, watch it again. this is Peter Greenaway. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, everything's in symmetry and everything kind of, you know, everything looks uh, balanced frame-wise. So that's why I'm kind of able to make that, that association. But, uh, yeah, they kill him in the worst way possible. Um, uh, a, a death fit for a bookseller. Um, so gosh, when the, by the time that we we see them, it's already so deep into the torture. Yeah. Well, and it's like it's it's um, being directed and overseen by Albert, but the person who is actually doing like shoving Tim these Roth. yeah these pieces yeah. of paper into his mouth with a wooden spoon and just shoving them down his throat is yes. Tim Roth. Did I say that one of Peter Greenaway's traits in his films is painful death? <laughs> no, you didn't mention that. But, I didn't know no, it's, I can, it's I can down see here. That. It's a, well, it's, <laughs> it's a thing it's, he does. It's right next to sexual pleasure. Yes. So well, they go hand in hand. As, but no, uh, he's he's as using he's, sex and death. He's using, and I don't know what it is. It looks like it looks like one of those like um, like those letter holder, like those letter stamp things that you would you would pop like bits of paper on and stuff like that. That he's using to stuff. The pages of this French Revolution book into his mouth. I thought it was just a wooden spoon. I also thought it was a wooden spoon. Just your classic kitchen wooden right. spoon. Because I thought it was something sharp and metallic. So that it, was like, it was like cutting his throat as he was like stuffing him full of this book. I did read when they're talking about this death that he's shoving stuff down his throat with like a spike. Like a, like a mm. spiky thing. So that's weird that Kat, you and I both thought it was a spoon. Because I thought it was a spoon. It I looked thought it just was. Like a it looked spiky, and it looked like one of those kind of uh, letter things that you would you would pop. Well, I'm paper glad onto. we're going to see it on the big screen. <laughs> yeah, I, I am excited about the big screen. I'm also excited about all the costumes on the big screen. Well, because like yes. when you see things on, I'm excited a, about the staging. On a yeah, on a large. <laughs> when you see things on a large screen, like you're able to see a lot more details that you don't see whenever you're watching it. Yeah. Also, this on television, this yeah. film on at least our TV. I don't know what our gamma settings are like, but the film is is dark. But I would say that that's deliberately so. Yeah. At certain so times for sure. yeah, I would say like it is dark for a reason. But that, yeah, that death is pretty horrific pretty for grim. him. Pretty grim. Yeah, the French Revolution. Yeah. Right down his mouth. It's it's so weird because while Tim Roth is shoving that the fucking paper in his mouth, he's eating the paper himself. Did you see that? Yeah. He's tearing bits off the book and just also putting it in his mouth, and he's actually eating it. Yeah. But I'm thinking, that's not a dummy person. Like, that's the guy, like, laying on the floor, from what I could tell. So you've got, you know, the actor just laying there on the floor, naked, covered in blood, you know, you know, makeup. But just getting that stuff shoved in his mouth. But one of the things that like that that stunned me is when obviously Helen Helen Mirren discovers him and she pulls out like rolled up bits of paper that are like stuck in the cavity of his nose yeah. that look incredibly long. 
And then you can see, obviously, pages and stuff that are kind of stuffed into his mouth. And it's obviously fucking Alan. Yeah. Alan Howard, who's lying there, and he's just had this stuff, like, stuffed inside of him. What an actor. It's, it's, the stuff, <laughs> the scenes that, like, precede that moment, though, I think are incredibly affecting, and they're incredibly interesting to watch, and she, like, lies with the dead body, and she's, like, fully expecting him to wake up and give him a kiss, give her a kiss in the morning, and she's gonna have breakfast, and, like, She's looking at the brighter side of what her future might have been if yeah. this hadn't, this obviously hadn't have, have happened. But then what follows that is this fantastic scene between her and the cook. Well, before we move on. Oh, sorry. Yeah, so her going to his corpse and, like, taking the things out of his nose and taking yeah. the things out of his mouth and then, like, her laying down and she's like, I'm going to tell you about some things in the morning and you're going to make me breakfast. And it's this whole like disassociation in like those first stages of grief, I guess, because she hasn't accepted that he's gone. No. And so when she does wake up and he's still dead and she's like, well, I guess I'll have to make myself breakfast. And she tells the corpse about, you know, all of the abuses that she suffered over the years. And she's able to like, unburden herself of these things that she's kept inside for years and then once she's done that then she's able to go to the cook and plan revenge (laughs) so the cook almost acts like like he's the put upon like funeral director for like what what is effectively to come i mean he kind of is and i i love this this moment because like i like the fact that you're talking about like disassociation and i didn't really kind of realize it until you kind of brought it up and i'm like he kind of goes back he's kind of like this uh he's like the the comparative to like the shakespearean observer like he starts to recite the things that she starts to doubt in her own mind about, like, well, you know, was our love real? Was our love true? And he's like, well, I I remember these moments in the story. It was like, I saw you were naked. I saw you put his you put your mouth on his penis. I yeah, saw he you was, kiss. He was very specific about all yes. the things that he's seen <laughs> yes. them do together. So again, like a very extreme <laughs> oh, and incredibly gosh. adult kind of detail, like, the, you know, the Shakespearean narrator, I guess, I suppose I would refer to him as. But by the time, like, she, she's like, I want you to cook him and I want us to eat him. I want you to cook and prepare my lover the way you would prepare and cook a, a meal. And you talk about the disassociation because immediately after he agrees to do it and the camera does that really long sidetrack from, like, the inside of the restaurant to going outside to then seeing the the painting that's obviously front and center within the restaurant as well, like that's outside. She is beyond consolable for that entire period where she's just she's just moaning in grief of like what it is that I guess either the realization of like what has exactly happened to her and what's happened to this situation. So Well and One thing that's interesting about that conversation she has with the cook is that at first, whenever she's asking him to to cook the lover, 
he's he keeps saying no no yeah like you're not you're not going it's not going to make you feel better to eat him yeah he didn't understand what she was trying to get at yeah because he thinks that she wants to eat him so then he can be a part of her and like i guess that makes sense but like she was like no i want you to cook him and we will feed him to albert yeah (laughs) Yeah, which I think is, like, so funny that the cook is like, no, this won't make you feel better. And she's like, yes, it will. Yeah. And then immediately he's like, you know what? Okay. Yeah, I'm I think down. we could definitely do that. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's make it really theatrical as well. And it's... Super glazed. Super glazed. It's... It's, uh... He also says yeah. earlier, there's the part where Michael Gambon is talking about how chefs are, like, artists, and they can put different ingredients or foods or things together, and it'll make a completely new flavor, and then he talks about, like, ham and pineapple and, and stuff like that, which is what ends up being Michael's body, because yeah. he's got bits of, like, sliced pineapple on his shoulders. <laughs> it's... It's like, yeah, it's like bits of pineapple or like slices of lemon and stuff like that oh, that yeah. are like on his shoulders and things. But the whole the whole sequence starts with, you know, obviously Gambon and his like his stragglers and stuff. He's brought to like this this event that's like he's the only invite and things. And Helen Mirren's like, well, you know, there's friends that are going to come. And as they bring the body in, it's like a funeral parlor. Like it's that whole uh, tradition kind of outlaying this whole thing and uh, he doesn't get it either they have they're carrying yeah this body which you can tell is a body on yeah. a large board it looks like covered yeah, in a someone's sheet. sleeping under a yeah, sheet it has, yeah it has it has it it has a sheet on top of the body you like can see the feet and the head but like covered in the sheet yeah and they're carrying it in and he's still excited He's the like whole ready. time, he's like, "You're here. We're back together. This is gonna be great. What is this beautiful gift you're and gonna give thing, me?" I'm also gonna point out as well, like how crazy Gambon's makeup got from the minute he realized that his wife was having an affair, and then how deeply his fucking eyes started to <laughs> oh, sink yeah. into, his, yeah. into his head by this time. He's like smiling and he's manic absolutely fucking manic well and georgina uh helen mirren like her her outfits throughout this entire film are fantastic yes like lots of lots of corsets and amazing her boobs look fantastic and everything but like this final scene she has this like huge like feather um collar happening and then there's this black netting Yes. That goes all over her body, but then there's like this massive train behind her. That the people are just carrying around behind her. Could you tell if the dress that she was wearing was see-through or not? I could not. It... It looked like it was see-through, but I wasn't totally sure because he... On our TV, I'm not too sure, but I'm pretty sure the actress who was the waitress in the movie who was then carrying that train is like Alex something. She was also a staple in fucking ER at one point. (laughs) Oh, okay. And she was a British... She's a British actress. Well, Albert mentions earlier in the movie about, you know, when she's having the affair and they're in all these different rooms and... uh, he pulls up her dress at one point and comments on the fact that she's not wearing any underwear. 
uh, which of course makes him really mad. But I'm wondering if that was just something that she'd brought back. It's hard to tell, you know, just through the darkness if it if she was wearing anything. Maybe we'll see or not. it. We'll see it on the big, see screen. On the big screen. I'm so excited. <laughs> and that that woman was Alex Kingston, by the way. Okay. Yeah. Um. So this is I, I we I'm calling it the last penis scene, but this is obviously, you know. Um, it's not real. Not real, yeah, it's but not it's real. a very end of the film, an hour, 56 minutes and 40 seconds. Yeah. But this is when you kind of get that big reveal of what's, what we've been leading to this whole time with, you know, I'll kill him and I'll eat him. Yeah. And this, uh, this kind of thing that they've all put, well, you know, that the wife and the cook have put together is, yeah. is cooking the lover to feed to the thief. And yeah. really. One of the... <laughs> It's it's so delicious in wow. like how it's how it's like put together because like we have... think about you think about like good revenge films and that sometimes you you don't get the payoff that you're looking for and I think about like really good kind of climaxes to those sorts of things and I think like I like I think Seven's very good at it I think Old Boy's very good at it. Where like the tables are turned into such a degree, and it's just like she just fucking points a guy at the gun and she says, "Yeah, eat it, eat it up." And he eats you it. You vowed you'd eat him. Now <laughs> eat him. Yeah. <laughs> and then she says, "Okay, you ready?" Yeah, I need to hear this. Yes. Try the cock, Albert. It's a delicacy, and you know where it's been. <laughs> <laughs> and he eats it. Well, he doesn't eat the dick. He well, eat he the does. Dick. He like does a bit eat of the stomach. He does eat some of of Michael, and then she shoots oh. him in the head and says, "Cannibal, cannibal." Mm. Boom. It's Boom. so. It's played so like when he puts that fork in and his hands are shaking and he's like, "It's just it's like the worst thing that he could <laughs> probably do." And he's been gorging himself up to this point as well. Like he'll eat anything. And it's such it's such a delicious moment that I'm just I'm glad that when we do see it on the big screen, like it's just I'll be able to appreciate the grandeur of that moment without having to feel like I've got analytical eyes on it. It's just so it's so special. So unbelievably special. Yeah. That's really lovely. Which is why it's like, it's like I would hate to see this film in like the sh- one of the shorter formats because I feel like it comes to such a crescendo at the end that I'm like, if this film's half an hour shorter, I'm like, well, will it, will it, is it, is it as effective? Yeah, the pacing I think would be like really messed with at that point. Yeah. It's, it's, I, we all, I don't know, I'm going to say we all, but I, I have a problem with the MPAA. I think that there's something wrong there that needs to be addressed. Um, the original running time of this film is 124 minutes. So, uh, the- I don't think it's a problem with the MPAA. I mean, I know, I know certainly there's an issue with that in terms of like, it's also the shortest version that you can find. And that's the U S version. But obviously the BBFC has an issue with the film as well because obviously their 18 rated cut is an hour and 44 minutes. I don't have a lot of research on that, but the MPAA gave Miramax a choice of either an X rating, you know, that we had back in the day, or to go unrated. 
for the theatrical release. And then the unrated is usually, you know, that's an adults only type of film. Yeah. So they were in a kind of a tight spot. They chose the unrated uh, be, instead of the X rating because obviously people think of, you know, pornography. Porn. Yeah. Um, there's it's two the, versions. Yeah, it's the death nail. It's the death nail for distribution if they do that. Two versions of the films were released on VHS in the 90s. One was the R rated cut, which is 95 minutes. Yeah, it's oh. weird. And yeah. 95 minutes. Did Miramax put that version out, though? So they, like, completely butchered it? Because if anything we know about Miramax, and we've, like, talked about Miramax before, is that they butchered their films to such a degree that, like, it, it, it was to maximize their distribution. Well, they also, and I don't know when exactly this partnership came into being, but I know that when I worked at Hollywood Video, uh, we didn't get Miramax films. Uh, we would get maybe like four or five copies, but Blockbuster had an, an agreement with Miramax. They did, so yeah. So they would get all of those films. The blob, but yeah, Blockbuster had like uh, like international autonomy. Like, I mean, that's that's just something that they had. Like, but Blockbuster originally stocked the unrated version of the film, but then had uh, complaints from religious groups thinking that <laughs> if they stocked the unrated or NC seventeen version of any films, it brings sex and violence into the mainstream. So Blockbuster <laughs> took it upon themselves to. To take all of the copies of NC-17 and unrated films off of their shelves. Yay, And Western only society. keep the edited R-rated versions that were available. Yeah. So um, Helen Mirren actually went to New York to argue with the MPAA. Because she goes, I don't, you know, it's different in Europe. And it's different in the UK. You know, like you were saying, you have 18 and over, etc. Um, so she said, I told the board... They absolutely could not legitimately criticize this film on its artistic merit. It may be pretentious or boring or whatever they want to say about it, but they can't deny where this, where its heart is. Yeah. But the MPA denied their appeal, obviously, and just said, you know, we're going to do whatever we want. It's such an odd kind of conversation to have about this film. And that we've covered films in the past that have had, like, multiple versions that have released. I mean, I think, obviously, our earliest one, obviously, is Color of Night, which had two versions. This is obviously one of the outliers in that it's just not widely available in any form whatsoever. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's kind of like, if you're not seeing the two-hour cut, I don't know if I'm fucking interested in watching the other versions because I'm really kind of worried about what it is that they've cut out because for the for the most part there's the the language is relatively quite tame at least to my standards and certainly kind of what it, the film is depicting is not graphic to the extent of like um like you know some of the things we've mentioned like kind of like you know the the abuse, the, you know, the potential rape and things. But again, you never really seen any, you never see that stuff like explicitly. So I'm assuming the issues they have with it are with that opening moment with the shit and then obviously the ending. And then also I have issues with that because the film has to end that way. There is no way that the story cannot substantiate itself without ever having that ending. The film just dies, in my opinion, if well, it doesn't it, have that ending. And it's it's the the logical ending to the it. It the makes story, it, yeah. The story has led to that point. Like everything has led to this moment happening, and the amount of impact that film's ending has is the only reason why this film is as regarded as it is. 
I'm going to say it's the nudity. I genuinely <laughs> well, it's, Yeah, it's definitely going <laughs> to be the... America yeah. has a problem with nudity. And uh, male dicks, nudity. dicks especially, and female orgasms. Um, and female frontal nudity in terms of anything below the waist. But this is also another moment, and I don't anything think we, the waist we, mean, didn't, we didn't point this out, <laughs> is that... The, the the minute they are hosed off and they go into the bookkeeper's house, there is a long tracking shot that's pretty much in a mid the entire time where they're chatting and they're going down his hallway and it's covered in books and stuff. It looks like um yeah, it looks like it, I like I like that I like that location in general. It looks like uh it looks like that scene in Blade Runner when it's just uh <laughs> that hotel and stuff like I just I don't know, I really like it. And they're completely <laughs> naked. They're completely naked, and you're seeing fucking everything. It everything is, is it, there. It's a gorgeous shot, and it's so casual, and it's these and we two never, people. Yeah, we never it, brought it up. Yeah, because it's 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 immediately after they get hosed off. It's just nice. Yeah, well, I we don't have to bring up every single moment, but like, it is a really beautiful. I mean, every I mean, every, every shot in this movie yeah. is a beautiful shot. He knows what he's doing, yeah. but I think that one is is particularly kind of touching. In terms of of where their kind of romance and and where their affair was heading, yeah, uh, obviously not in yeah. a good place. But this this is another movie because you know last we were on for short bus, but um, this this film has resolve at the end of it, and you don't feel as bad about it because she's taking her power back, and yeah. so this is one of the few uncomfortable brunch films where you don't feel as bad afterwards <laughs> like usually our like thing is like if we watch a movie and we feel bad like worse than when we started it then that's that's an uncomfortable brunch movie but this one like it has so much resolve yeah but it's iconic and not a lot of people have seen it yeah yeah no it's a fantastic ending because i think the minute gambon dies credits roll like that's it. Like yeah. there's no fucking around with it. You don't need um, any follow up after that. That's all you need to see. No, no, because you know you know what the future holds at that point, and it's incredibly positive from there. But it's like it's the greatest insult when it when it happens to Gambon as well, the Gambonier, as I've decided to dub him. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think I think this. Yeah, I think this. Uh, the more yeah, the more we think about it and extrapolate, it, I think this film's fucking brilliant. Well, this is a wonderful time to go around the table and we'll yes. do our ratings in terms of visibility and context. And I'll start because I'm already talking and I'm going to, oh, this is hard because I wrote four and I'm like, but what makes a five? You know, what really makes a five? Yeah, what makes a five? Because here's the thing. This five? is when, well, well, here's a, if I think about fives that we've done before, um, Shame, shame. Shame is one. Uh, Bad Lieutenant is one. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think also uh, Hunger is another five as well. Um, a couple of Steve McQueeners in there. Yeah. Um, so really, it kind of depends on, like... Uh, maybe yeah. maybe more time on screen. How about four and a half? Okay. Visibility and context, four and a half. Okay. That's me. And um, do you want me to do my film... No, we'll do that okay, next. We'll do that next. Okay, yeah. Kat, you go next. Visibility and context. I think I agree with the four point five. Yeah. Uh, I would have liked to see more. Agreed. Yeah, I think contextually, it's all 
it's all there. It's just not it's not particularly clear for most of the time. Um, it's dark. It's a dark film too. It's a dark film, and I I like how the film looks. So like I don't really have a problem with that, and it's obviously a very stylistic choice. Um, but in terms of you know, it, I think it it contextually should have five. But then when you look at the visibility, it's like closer to like maybe like a three. So everything kind of averages out at about a four, in my opinion. You know. Um, I just, I like how open the film is because obviously you're looking at two lovers who are very kind of, and if, if we think about like, uh, the fragility of like human existence and like when we fall in love and things like that, like the purest moments that we have in our memory is with people when we're lying naked with them and we're kind of like happy is like, you know, post coitus or whatever this fucking shit is. So, you know, um, (laughs) for most of their time it's pre is, yeah, it's all pre coitus. Or, uh, yeah, post-coitus. Either way. But yes, Mid. it's like... Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think it's close to probably more a four than a four and a half. But yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't reach the heady heights of a five, I'm afraid. No. Um, yeah, I think that's usually what we are looking for is more. More lighting, more time on screen. and But I love, love the balance uh, that we get in this because it's a long yeah. time into the film before we actually see female nudity mm-hmm. and it's none of the nudity is gratuitous at all. No. Um, but it needs to be there. It's also like a weird balance because we have that just basically pure violation that happens in the first like three minutes and you're just like, holy fucking Christ. And then the rest of it is relatively quite, you know, it's innocent, it's pure, it's, you know, it's in the sake of, like, contextually that way, so... Well, until the end as well. So until the end, So you have the yes. beginning, it's quite a violation, as well as the end, in a way. Well, we do know how much <laughs> Peter Greenaway loves symmetry, so his ending is very much like his beginning. Yeah. So, you know. I, in terms of the film overall, I, I'd written down a four... And I think that is purely, I do believe that this has the opportunity to go higher for me, Um, especially when sitting in a cinema with other people. I think this will be quite different. Yeah. But sitting at home and kind of having to look at it with a critical eye, I think it's, it's has the, it definitely can go higher. But right now I'm going to, I'm sitting at a four for for an overall rating because I, I didn't find it slow at all. I found it very, very engaging. Um... And entertaining and sad, but really funny and and gross, but not as gross as I thought it was going to be. And also kind of romantic. And uh, I had I kind of had all the things that I like, you know, cannibalism. Yeah, I'm surprised. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't the surprised one, that one you liked thing, this film. There was one trigger warning that I forgot um, <laughs> that uh, that I'm pulling out at the very end that uh, he does run over a dog. <laughs> Oh yeah, in the film, and I like to think that even in 1989, hopefully that was just a dog actor who got lots of Tritos after for being a good boy and looking like he was hurt. I hope. There's plenty of moments where you feel like the dogs aren't treated well. No, the dogs are running wild and, and fighting dogs with each are other. Just doing and I, stuff, yeah. when he starts backing that car up, I genuinely thought there's a lot of dogs around, and I don't know if the dogs are paying attention. So, uh, were yeah. animals harmed in the making of this film? Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, potentially. Anyway, go on, Cat. Let's have your <laughs> rating. I'm going to give it a 4.5. 
um, out of out of five stars because um, I am a fan of symmetry because of my affinity for Wes Anderson. <laughs> you probably know this, <laughs> but I do love things that are well constructed and uh, the formality of it. So I appreciated like all of the color palettes, um, all of the blocking and structure to this production. And I like that the story was very clear cut and it was easy to follow even when you couldn't really understand what Albert was saying because he's just yeah. rattling off like all the time, which like that, that's kind of the, the harming of the dogs it makes me like a, a little bit like less um, of the not a five. Um, and also <laughs> like Albert constantly like rattling off like I feel like I lost a lot of um the additional context that I could have had but it's just like because of the cockney it's so fast um but you always know what's going on generally in the film which I think is good that it comes across and um everything was choreographed really well especially like in the like the sex scenes with the lovers, like, I'm not a person who likes gratuitous sex in film, and I didn't feel overwhelmed by anything that was going on in this. Like, the nudity, it was all, like, planned out and choreographed, and it made sense, and it looked good. Yeah. It looked amazing. They looked great. Um, everyone looked great naked. Um, except Roy, who was the guy with the dog shit at the beginning. Yeah, so. I don't blame him too oh, much. Poor Roy. He did get peed on. Too. Yeah, he did get pissed off. But he got to be there for the the guy's like murder, so he was at, he was in the ending scene. Yeah, yeah, because all the people that he had wronged got to be there. Yeah, including Pup in moment. the wheelchair. So we know that Pup pulled through. Yeah. Good old Pup. <laughs> all right, Ryan. Um. So. So I originally gave the film four stars, and I think, like, a lot of the stuff that you guys are talking about are, like, the things that I really, like, I look for in films, which is, you know, the staging, the choreography, like, how scenes develop, how transitions happen, like, how you kind of feel, like, absorbed in this world and stuff, because there's no sense of, like... There's no sense of, like, time. There's no sense of place. There's no sense of, like, distinction in uh, period or anything like that with this movie. So, you know, it's it's kind of... Um, it's kind of... It's weird in that sense, and it kind of feels almost slightly kind of hellish as you're watching it because it's so enclosed and it, you know, it creates a world uh, that's very much within, like, a microcosm and stuff like that, which is something that I quite enjoy from, you know, watching stage plays and, and, and other kind of filmmakers of the like. So I, I love I love a lot about this film. But then I also have, like, these conflicts with it where I'm like, you know, we watch the two-hour version of the film and, you know, there's shorter versions out there. I'm like, is there, like, a sweet spot where I get everything? But then at least there's maybe a little bit of the chaff. Like, maybe one of the tracking shots doesn't have to be as long or whatever else. <laughs> you just stuff. want it to be a little bit shorter. I want it to be a little bit shorter. 
but it is it is designed it is like a it's a film by design that has been structured this particular way and I don't want to take anything away from it because it's there's so many things in it that I adore and I love which is a weird thing for me to say because I had such a kind of weird bias against Greenaway stuff when I was a lot younger. So, well, when we started this film, you go, "All right, let's start this shit." Yeah, <laughs> I was. Ex- Look at you now. I was expecting to hate it. Well, the problem is, is like I've just gotten older and I've decided that I appreciate things a little bit more. You know, other than stuff like in the cut, like in the cut can still go fuck itself. I'm not that fucking. I'm not that fucking intellectualized to fucking deal with that. That. Stupid nonsense. Did you know that Michael Nyman did the music for uh, the piano? Yes. Okay. <laughs> but that <laughs> that fi- that film's still like that film's still good, and I'm st- I'm terrified to watch it because Jane Campion stuff's so fucking hit and miss. I'm okay, like, I'm so sorry. Go on to your rating. Anyway. Yeah, are you gonna gonna do? Yeah, <laughs> I said I was. I probably I would probably I want to see the film in the cinema, and I'll probably end up giving it five. But at the moment, it's like four and a half. Wonderful. So, in a cinema, I'd probably give it five, because it's like... Oh, yeah, it's going to go up. Everyone watch my... Well, I don't know how this timing goes, <laughs> but uh, Letterboxd. Anyone should follow us on Letterboxd. It's fun. Yeah, you should. Shout out to Letterboxd, along with Tubi, should be sponsoring this show. They should be, yeah, because we tout your we tout your platform like Nadie's business. That's true. Yeah. And we pay for it. We do pay oh, for I, it. Yeah, I pay for Letterboxd, too. Yeah, exactly. I love those stats. <laughs> oh, my God, the stats. I'll send we should this, compare stats later. Well, well, I'll send this clip to the, the good folks at Letterboxd on Instagram, and hopefully they, they come back and be like, that's really nice. Well, and that's it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm very excited we got to do this, and this is quite a long one, so I hope it everyone is. enjoyed it uh, as, as I did, and I hope everyone enjoys this film. If you have trouble finding it, uh, you, you know... Come on. There are ways. There are ways. There are this is my, my first solo mm-hmm. time with you guys. Yay! It was wonderful. Yeah, I think it was. I had a great time, yes. and I can't wait to watch Uncomfortable Brunch. It's going to be fun. Yes. Yay! So, coming to you uh, from the toilet at the Hollandaise <laughs> restaurant. Yay! Bon appetit. Uh, I have been Laura. Toot sweet. And... That means quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and that's Ryan. Yeah, that's me. And this is? I'm Katie or Kat or whatever you want to call me. Probably just one of those two. It's probably yeah. one of those two. You're opening a door for, for some level of abuse from the internet if you do that. You can call me cunt. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, thank you for being here and we will see you uh, next time. At brunch, probably. Is that cunt with a K? <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs>